Well, um, thank you so much for worshiping. Thank you for worshiping as well. <clears throat> so you're probably wondering what we're doing here. So are we. No, um, we, uh, we are kind of... Wanna, I, what I wanted to do when I had thought about asking um, Dr. Aaron Johnson... Can I call you Aaron? Yes. yes okay. <laughs> and... And Dr. Rachel, no, Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Semeni, um, to come before us was because I had back this fall, we had talked about um, inviting, we did a whole series on invitations, and then we um, did some things on helping, encouraging people to invite. And so I uh, noticed um, when I was looking at, you're getting married this summer, and I looked at your thing, I thought, wow, this is really cool, because this is an invite story, and I thought this would be good for you to hear. So I thought maybe, uh, Rachel, you could start out by just telling us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm married to Aria, and um, we have two small girls, uh, Lucia, who is almost two and a half, and then um, a new baby, Noel, who is almost four months. Um, and we've been married for almost seven years and have been coming to Wyzetta for about six. I about think. six. Cool. And, and then, Aaron, would you tell us a little bit about um, who you are? Um, well, you're marrying my fiance John and I this summer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in Shakopee. Uh, I went to college at St. Olaf and then uh, dental school at the University of Minnesota. And then I did a fellowship there. Um, and then I stayed there. So I'm a full-time faculty teaching dental students two days a week. And then I see patients there the other two days of the week. So you guys are friends, right? We okay. are. Okay. Yes. okay. Yeah. And how is it you started coming to Wise Up? Um, well, I had to kind of look back at the timing, and it was about January or February of 2016. Um, John and Aria were playing in a basketball league that Aria had put together, um, and Rachel and I were obviously paying strict attention only to the basketball, very intense. Oh, yeah, right. Only that. Sure, sure. sure. Um, not talking at all? Not at all. Oh, okay. But we had maybe just a little time in between there to uh, talk about how we met Aria and John, um, Lucia was just a little baby, so talk about her. Um, and then just get to know each other a little bit better. Um, we actually didn't talk about church very much at that very first meeting. Um, and John had brought me here to Wise Data Free maybe once um, before Rachel just sent a text message and a little voicemail just saying that we're starting a little small group if you're interested. Um, it's going to be at Mary King's house on, on Wednesday. Um, and that nobody really knew each other yet, so I didn't have to feel pressure that I would be the only person that didn't know everybody. Um, and then she just kept saying that she'd love to see me there. Um, and I actually couldn't go to the first meeting that she invited me to uh, just because of work things. Um, but I replied that I was definitely interested, um, but I'd never done a small group. And so it just made me nervous that I wouldn't have the right answers or I, I wouldn't know the people and I wouldn't fit in. Um, but I was just really surprised that I actually said yes because my work schedule is a little unpredictable and so it makes me kind of tentative to, co- to commit to anything consistently. Sure. sure. So in that process, you're being invited. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about is it's usually just a simple ask that can sometimes get people moving in a direction, whether it's to know Jesus for the first time or to grow deeper in your faith. And, and we're always kind of afraid to make that little ask, that invite. And so were you, were you afraid at all, uh, Rachel? I mean, you're, you're getting to know each other. You're yeah. sitting there 
avidly watching the game and every once in a while talking to one another. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know if it was um, being naive or just maybe not getting too worked up about it, but I think um, it just felt sort of like an easy... It did feel kind of like an easy little ask. Um, and it, I don't know, at the time it didn't feel deeply spiritual, but um, I think oftentimes we don't know what God's going to use. And so it's been fun for me to hear Aaron's side of the story and think about how for me it just felt like, oh, oh yeah, Aaron, I wonder if she'd like to do that. I should invite her. Yeah. And then um, to see how God's used sure. it um, to you know, bring her here and grow and... Um, yeah. So what's kind of neat is that group, you've had a number of people that I think you've asked, and then other people ask. It's just kind of how it happens. Um, I'm sure you were glad you were asked. What has happened? What's the impact of that ask on your life? Well, I'm just so, so thankful that Rachel did ask, um, because besides getting to know each other better, it just opened the door to this amazing group of ladies who are all kind of in different phases of life. Um, and it just really helps tackle everyday life challenges. Um, we do a lot of uh, small group prayer requests, and then people will send like affirmations throughout the week to just help you. Like They were praying specifically for us today that this talk would go well. <laughs> Not that you were afraid or anything. Oh, yeah. yeah definitely afraid. Um, and then the small group helped just make me feel more comfortable that then I have a family here at Wyzetta Free. And um, it just helped strengthen my personal relationship with God and that how I handle stress and asking God for like help in stressful situations rather than trying to solve it all on my own. Yeah. Well, I am so glad you did this, and I'm so glad you asked, and you, you said yes. <laughs> and then I get to marry you guys um, this, this summer. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for um, just this opportunity to hear stories. And there's probably a number of stories out there where people have been asked or they're asking and people even thinking about asking someone either to a small group or to a place to serve with us together or whatever way you would do that. I pray that you would give us boldness to not miss those opportunities. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Thank you so much. You can clap. Yeah, it takes a lot of guts to come up here um, and, and do the little interview thing with me. Um, well, I would, uh, after Easter, we had a family dinner at our house and had uh, someone else as well over. And and the question came up at the lunchtime, what did Jesus do for those 40 days between the resurrection and when he left this earth? And I thought, wow. That's a good question. So if you know the answer right now, no. Um, It is a good question because we're going to read exactly what he did from Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you would as we read the Word of God. I will read it to you. And it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them for over a period of over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So that's what he was doing. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into the heavens. Thank you. You may be seated. So that's what's happened between the resurrection and Jesus' ascension. And this morning, I was thinking about the afterlife. I felt it was very important that we speak about this doctrine called the ascension. We talk about his descension, his incarnation, and we talk a lot about that around Christmas time. We'll talk about his sacrifice on the death. Uh, on the cross, his death on the cross, and we spend great time on that. And then we, we hit Resurrection Sunday and we talk about that. But seldom do we talk about the Ascension. How many have heard a message on the Ascension before? A few, but it's, the, it's one of the great, incredibly important doctrines that we hold to within the church. Because it wasn't just a resurrection, he appeared to a few people, but he actually, at a certain point, departed this earth and went into the heavens. Can you imagine, as you think about it, here is Jesus, he's with his disciples, he's telling them these last things, he's with them for those 40 days. And he's going to return to his father. He's going to return to his home. In a few days, on a Wednesday this week, I'm going to be with a bunch of college guys, about five guys of us, and we get together, we've been doing it for 20-some years. Three Three of us have known each other since middle school. And Around January, February, I start looking forward to being with those guys because it feels like home. It's just kind of like a safe place because they know me and we know each other so well. And I look forward to it and I can't wait. We do stupid things like we learn how to surf. And I got a call this week, a few weeks ago, and said, do you want to try skydiving? I said, "Eh, don't know about that. Let me check my insurance. But I'm so excited about just being with those guys. Can you imagine how excited Jesus was after three years living on this earth, giving up all that heavenly privilege, and now he he knows he's about to go home to be with his father, his dad. Well, what I want to do is take a look at this doctrine of dissension, and I want to look at it from this passage of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And, and I want you to note the last thing Jesus says before he leaves. And before he leaves, before he departs, he makes a statement in verse 8. He says, be witnesses. He kind of is giving a commission He says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're continually thinking about this physical kingdom that will be restored. And and Jesus says, I have done this work and I have brought the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of hearts, 
to be this one who will rule in your heart to you. Now I want you to go out, he says, and do the same. Someday, at the Father's knowing, it will be restored. But from this point till I leave, until the point the kingdom is restored in fullness, here's what you're to do. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates that the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. He says that's a fact. Any person here who has opened their heart and said to Jesus, I want to follow you and I want to know you, and I, I acknowledge my need of you, and I admit that I am a person who sins and has, has this disease called sin in my heart that I needed you to take away. Would you enter into my life and begin to lead and to guide me? And he says, better than just doing that, I will actually send my Holy Spirit into your heart and he will live in you. And his power will be made manifest so that you can actually walk out this life and begin to follow me in ways you couldn't follow me before. And as you do that, you will. You will be a witness. It's just, what kind will you be? I says, that's just a fact. And he said, we're to be witnesses. We're not to go about, and, and you're not supposed to go to your, your office or, or the place you work. And you're not, your job is not to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not your job to first get all kinds of Bible education before you become a witness. There is in, in no way in Jesus' words here that you're to be an apologist so you can go ahead and answer every kind of philosophical, theological question that a person might bring your way. You are just to be a witness, which means you're to be ready to tell people when they ask you why you have a hope. That when you go through a difficult time and they see you rejoicing, even though it's difficult and you're honest and it's painful, but you know there is this truth that God reigns even in this situation. And they ask you, how can you have this kind of attitude? You see, to be a witness isn't really a difficult thing. It's just reporting to someone else what Jesus has done for you. There is a story in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus comes and they come to this um, where the ten cities are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And here's this guy who has been living in this graveyard. He is a mess filled with all kinds of evil spirits. And Jesus heals him. And you would think this would be the perfect guy that would be kind of a, a person you'd want when you're an itinerant preacher to stand up before others and share their story. You would think that Jesus would want him to go. In fact, the guy's begging Jesus to go with him. And Jesus says, no, I want you to be a witness. I want you, he says literally, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell throughout the surrounding ten cities how much Jesus had done for him. And so before Jesus leaves, isn't it interesting, one of the last things he tells them, after they ask about the establishment of the kingdom that's yet to come, when, when, when heaven will come down to earth, he, and they're asking, he says, you don't need to know the times and the dates, it's going to happen. But what I want you to know is this. From that time till when that occurs, each and every person who says they are a follower of Jesus are witnesses. You have opportunities, like we saw up here, to maybe make an ask. And just say to someone, you know what? 
And I have to share with you, in our culture today, I have noticed with people, they are open to studying the Bible because many people have no idea what the Bible has to say. It's all hearsay. And it's amazing how often you can, and I look at especially this generation, 40 years and younger, if you say, hey, I'm going to meet with some people and some friends and we're going to just, we're going to go through a book of the Bible, we're going to read some books that are about faith, would you be interested in doing it? It's amazing how many people are open to doing that. If you ask. I, I think about it in this story. Can you imagine Peter? What if Peter just decided, I'm going to go back fishing, forget this whole witness thing. Think about it for a second. There's people in your life. There have probably been points in your life where people have come before you and they just made a simple ask. What if they didn't? We don't think about the the fact that so often we miss the opportunity ourselves to do that. I don't know what it is, whether it's fear, whether we feel we're not qualified, we don't have enough competency to be able to tell people about Jesus, but it's really pretty simple. It's just kind of, well, how about maybe meeting with some other people that are meeting and talking about Jesus? What if someone didn't ask you? So the first thing is about being witnesses, and being witnesses is really a simple thing. It's merely going about and telling people, what Jesus has done for you. The second thing that I think is interesting here is the first thing we see is, is the last words that Jesus says to him. Now I want you to note the next thing the disciples did after Jesus ascended. All right? Here they are. They've been trained for three years. They've been apprentices. They've been working hard. You know, it's like going to school. If you've got trained in a certain area in a specific thing, you're ready to go. You want the job. Here's what Jesus, here's what the disciples did after Jesus ascended. They did nothing. They did nothing. In fact, if you look at the word of God here, we're told that um, they're standing there. They're looking up into the sky. Verse 10. When these two men in white come before them and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Kind of almost get on with it. Do what Jesus told you to do. And the followers of Jesus do exactly what Jesus told them to do. Look what he told them to do. We read about it in verse 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Isn't that great words? Wait. He said, I want you to go back, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I just want you to wait. It's just not what you'd expect. You'd kind of think, like, get on with this, start witnessing, start telling people... But what's interesting here is they had all gone on many mission tours before. They had gone out and they had gone out two by two and they did some healing. So you'd think they'd be prepared to do it. But what they weren't aware of is that this wasn't some mini mission thing they were going to do. They were going to do something they couldn't even dream was possible. They were actually going to be used by the Spirit of God to go not just into Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria, but they were going to be used by God to go to the whole world and they were going to bring the message of Jesus to the whole world as witnesses. And so... Jesus says, you need to wait. There is something that's going to come. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist, he baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, they wait, but they don't wait doing nothing. They wait expectantly, with hope. They wait praying. They're coming before God. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and they all joined together constantly in prayer. You ever been in one of those seasons where God's been kind of speaking to you and you think he, you know, he's calling you to do something and, and you know that you've been trained, you're ready to do it, and all of a sudden he says, mm, not yet. And maybe you're in that season where you're waiting right now. And God's calling you to, to kind of just wait because in that waiting, he says, I just want you to pray because sometimes as you wait and you pray, he's preparing your own heart. Sometimes when you wait and you pray, He's preparing others. That's what was going on in this situation because he had them to go back to their, to Jerusalem and he had them wait till the day of Pentecost because at that time all kinds of people would come into the city and, and I don't think they knew this in their head. They were praying and they were starting to think, well, we need to name another apostle. So they did some casting of lots to get someone and then eventually we're told that the Spirit of God is poured out on them. And so here's what happens when Jesus ascends. So the last thing he says to him is be my witness. The next thing the disciples do is nothing but pray and they wait. Because God sometimes has to prepare us and prepare others. Prepare others. And the next thing you see is that Jesus ascends. And when Jesus ascends, here's what Jesus does. You're maybe wondering what is Jesus doing in heaven. And we have that question, what, what's going on right now? What's happened as a result? What are the implications that he has gone into heaven? Well, the first thing that we find is that Jesus sits down. And Peter, when he gives the first message, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people and he's speaking to the people, they're wondering what's going on because they're speaking in tongues. They're thinking they're inebriated. What's going on? And Peter stands up and with boldness speaks. The same guy who just a little bit before that denies that even knows Jesus. He stands up and he says in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 35, this crowd gathered around him. He says, God had promised David on oath that he would place one of his descendants on David's throne. So he's speaking this message to him. I'm just giving you a short part of it. It was a lot longer than this. In verse 31, see what was to come. David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and he says, we're all witnesses of this. And he's exalted to the right hand of God. So that's what Jesus ascends into heaven. He's exalted to the right hand of God. And now listen to what Peter says. He's quoting David. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, here's what he does. The first thing that Jesus does, he sits down. He sit, He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You get this picture of Jesus coming into heaven. The father gave him a hug and everyone just kind of high-fiving him. Everything's really good. And then the father, after they do all that kind of welcoming, he kind of just says, you know, here's the throne right next to me, son. I want you to take a seat. I want Jesus to sit down. In, in Hebrews 1, 3, says it this way, The Son of, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, you have to understand what it means to be seated. 
when you take the seat in that sense as the son does, he is making a statement. Let's, let's just pretend it's spring outside, okay? Just imagine, if you can, in your mind, it's a nice warm day, it's really sun shining down, and, and you go, I'm gonna do some spring cleaning. You're really excited about doing some spring cleaning work, right? You get out in the yard, you get things all nice, you maybe have this little garden you prepared, and you spend the whole morning and maybe a little bit of the afternoon, and you're just exhausted. Right? You, you've worked very hard. You, you had a plan. You wanted to get so much done. You knew when you got to that point, you were done for the day. You're sweating. You come back in. You grab something to drink. You sit down, right? You, you, you grab something to drink. You're not going to be walking. You, you actually are in this place where you're kind of tired. And you're, the work's been done. You've done it. You've done a good job. You sit down. That's exactly, after the purification of sins, here's Jesus. He kind of says, Father, they do this plan together. He agrees. He goes down to the earth. He, he walks among us. He lives a sinless life. He, he is persecuted. He's, he's, he's put on a, a cross like a common criminal, all for the purpose of getting rid of our sins. The whole work that he had come to do was display the glory of his Father in heaven, express as well as he could, which he did well, the love of God. And that love was expressed in its greatest work and the greatest work was done on the cross and on the cross at one point when he's just about giving up his last and final breath, what does he say? It's done. It's finished. It's complete. And so he takes the next 40 days and goes around and, and, and makes sure people know that this sacrifice, if we said the cross was the payment of our sin and the resurrection then is the receipt that you walk around when anyone says, hey, when you start feeling like, hey, I'm not forgiven, I'm not forgiven at all, you just, it's not about your feelings, it's not what anyone says, it's not the accusation you get from Satan, you just hold up the resurrection, the empty tomb, and you say, guess what, here's my receipt, I don't need to feel guilty anymore. And what happens is Jesus comes into heaven, he comes to his father, his father gives him a big hug and he says, sit down, son. Good job. Every person here who trusts in the work of Jesus for forgiving your sins is forgiven. It's not your job to work anymore. He did it for you. And he's not still working. He's not still offering sacrifices for you. It's done, complete, finished. And the ascension tells us that Jesus sat down. He sat down. We're also told that not only did Jesus sit down when he gets to heaven, we're told that he equips us. Part of the whole plan was not only that the work would be finished, that you would sit down. If you listen to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we read that when the day of Pentecost came, so those 10 days, they're waiting, they're praying, they're hoping, they're expecting for God to do what he said he would. Jesus told them to wait. They were all together in one place. They had been praying. God's preparing them. He's preparing the things around him. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind comes from heaven and fills the whole house where they were seating, sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and come to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
And if you then jump to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, because people are looking around, they don't get what's going on. So you get to chapter 2, verse 32, and it says, Peter goes, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses. He's exalted him to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Jesus, in a sense, sits down and then he sits for a second and the Father says, it's, you know, a couple days go by. He says, yeah, I think the time is now. All of Jerusalem's full. They're in that house together. Hey, go ahead. And it's like he almost kind of goes and just pours out the Spirit on everybody. So not only is Jesus sitting down, he's equipping us. He gives you and me the Holy Spirit so that we can walk this life with with Jesus Christ. So when we do sin, we don't have to get all guilted out. We can just confess and say, I'm so sorry. And and, and, and God says, I forgive you. And, and with the seriousness of your heart and with the Spirit of God, you say, God, would you just help me? Would you help me move into a place as I understand how deeply you love me? Would you begin to help me to love other people like you love other people? Would you help me serve people like you serve other people? Jesus, I am so grateful you have poured out your Holy Spirit on me because I want to be a witness from this point until the time you come again. I want people to know how incredibly wonderful you are. And every person here is given the Holy Spirit. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he gives you a spiritual gift. There is not a person in this room who has received the Holy Spirit who does not have a gift from the Spirit of God to be a witness. So it's not just that you are a witness telling people what Jesus has done for you. He has equipped you with the possibility to use something special and unique in you to touch other people's lives. Are you using it? Are you using these gifts that God has placed in your life to touch other people's lives? You will give an account for that someday. It's not that he doesn't love you anymore. It's like you give something to your kids and you, you expect them to use this in a certain way and you, 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 kinda, you, you wonder, are they using it? Are you enjoying this thing he's given you? So Jesus equips us. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that as he ascended, he, he gave to each one of us grace. It says in verse 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is what it says. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles and he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave pastors and he gave teachers. They're kind of foundational gifts. They're kind of these core kind of positions that do this kind of work to help build up people as they follow him. In fact, it says it this way. They gave all these to equip his people for works of service. So when we talk about a season of service, he's just saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with going around and loving people, using the gifts God's given you to be a witness so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, says Paul. There's another thing that happens. Not only does he seated, not only does he come and pour out the Holy Spirit to equip us, but he does this too. He has all authority. So in Jesus, as he pours out the Holy Holy Spirit upon all people, it's kind of like he gets back 
And he's now sitting there as the one in charge. He has all authority. There is no doubt in the minds of the apostles and the disciples who are following because they're transformed followers. They know that this Jesus who walked with them, who had authority here on earth, now is in heaven with all authority. So here you see in Acts, as you go through this book, kind of we're just walking through a few stories in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, you come along and here's Peter and John, and they're on their way to the temple. As they're on their way to the temple, they see this guy who's begging. This guy has been there all his life, from birth. He's been put at the temple gate, usually at a very young age they're put there, and he begs for his keep, and he brings that money back home to the family that keeps him. That's his job, because he can't do anything else. So he's standing there, I mean, sitting there, he's begging, and as Peter and James and John go by, here all of a sudden, he, he, they, Peter stops and looks at him and goes, I, I, I can't give you any, any money. I don't have any, any money on me. But I do have something that's a lot better than that. He says, I have Jesus. And so this guy is healed and word gets out and people are so excited because now Jesus seems to be in their midst again through these followers of Jesus. And it gets to the Sanhedrin, which is the highest court in the land. The Pharisees find out and the Sadducees come together and they, they bring in these two disciples and have them stand before them. And they admonish them and say, do not tell anyone else about this name of Jesus. That's it. Stop. Here's the authority. Highest court in the land. Do not tell anyone else about Jesus. And and they kind of look at them and kind of go, well, you know, in fact, I should probably just read it to you. They call them into the presence and commanded them not to speak or teach. Acts chapter 4, verse 18 through 21. At all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you? Or him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. They, they let him go at that point. They don't know how to punish them. Because how do you punish someone who's not afraid of you anymore? These are guys who just about 50 days or so ago saw that Jesus, who was put to death by them, rises from the dead... And he's walking in their midst and they're kind of thinking, you know what, if I'm a follower of Jesus, they put me to death, I'll be rising again. It really doesn't matter. He's in charge now. He's the authority. So at another point, they're upset and the people are all praising God because of what's happened. You have to understand this guy, um, we're told, was like, he was like 40 years old at this time. So this is a long time this guy has been, you know, has been begging there. So news like that gets out to everybody. So one more time they bring him in and they threaten them, they intimidate them, they imprison them, they stone them. They're thinking no matter what you want to do to us, even though you think you have authority, you don't. It's kind of like I've heard someone say, you know, it's tough to kill a dead man twice. Right? If you died to yourself and to all other people trying to impress them and approve them, get their approval. And, you know, when you die to that, then you're free. You're free to live for God, for Jesus. So it says here in Acts chapter 5, verse 40 through 42, um, they're so convinced that Jesus is, is alive. Luke tells us in this Acts chapter 5, 40 to 42, that on another occasion, the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land, threatened, and now this time they flogged them. 
And it says that when they left their presence after the flogging, here's what they did. They were rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming, witnessing the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I just think to myself, how do you stop someone who's no longer afraid of you? Some of you have that problem with your kids, right? What do you do when people who believe that Jesus is in charge, even when you hurt them and you flog them and you do things to, and you, you physically intimidate them, they leave your presence rejoicing? Not disrespectful to you, but rejoicing that they can follow Jesus and walk with him. The next thing you find is, so you hear of Jesus, here he is in authority. He takes his throne. He's sitting in authority. And now we go along, and about Acts chapter 7, there's a story that happens with a guy named Stephen. Stephen goes out and he starts sharing his faith. He, does, he has this message that just throws the religious leaders in Jerusalem in a tizzy. His, his message is this. There's a new temple. This is, I'm giving it to you in shorthand. There's a new temple. It used to be that God showed up in that building. He showed up in Jesus, and Jesus walked all around with us. And then when Jesus left, he went to heaven, sat down, work was completed, we're forgiven, so we're in a place where we have a relationship with God. And as a result of that relationship, Jesus got up, he poured out his Holy Spirit, gave us the power of his authority to be able to walk through this life. He sits back down. He's in authority. And now the new temple is you and me. We're little temples going everywhere throughout this world. We're not having to wait to just come to church. We actually are the church. Going all around. Allowing God to use us to touch the lives of other people. They don't like this message. So they stand. They take Stephen and they start to stone him. And they're stoning him. And Stephen, at one point, as they're stoning him, he says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And here's what he saw. This Jesus who was sitting, who had poured out his spirit, who was in charge, stands as if he's peering over the heavens or looking through the heavens. And he's at the right hand of God. Look, Stephen says, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God and while they were stoning him Stephen prayed Lord Jesus receive my spirit and then he fell on his knees and cried out listen to the love in his heart Lord do not hold this sin against them how do you think they were feeling I know one person the apostle Paul was cut to his heart and when he said this I love scripture he fell asleep. A very euphemistic way of saying he died. But you don't really die if you're a believer because you're going to rise again. And what I love about this passage of Scripture is Jesus is not asleep. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you feel. Um, you may be, um, the circumstances may be turned against you. It may be illness. It may be persecution. It may be something going on. But you don't have this Jesus who, who came up here and, and is just sitting. The work is done. He's completed the work for your forgiveness. He's poured out 
his Holy Spirit. He came back. He's sitting in charge, but now at times, at times he stands like he does for Stephen and he looks down and he sees you and he, he knows your situation. He is standing there with you. He sees Stephen. Stephen has a task to do. Stephen was giving his life and the word witness in Greek means martyr. It's actually martyr is, is the Greek word. And, and here he is as a witness unto death for Jesus. And Jesus is not He's not sitting back there unconcerned. He is standing there saying, my son, I love you. So he's not sitting on his throne kind of going, yeah, too bad for Pete or Joe or Susie. He sees your situation and he is moved to compassion as you follow him. As he does a work through you because it was Stephen's death That was the thing that moved the heart of Paul as he stood around him approving what was going on. And Paul is the reason we have all these epistles, is the reason why he touches many of our lives, your lives, my life. But there's one other thing, there's a number of other things that could have gone. I was just trying to pare this down, okay? I send this out to a number of people to read. One of them is John Oman, who's doing the study guide lessons now. And he goes, there's a lot in this. I said, yeah, there is. Okay. The last thing is Jesus will come again in glory and honor. So he, he stands, he sees what's going on. He's standing as he looks at people's lives and he's seated. And at a certain point, the father says, it's time. I do not know the, the, the time nor the hour, says Jesus. But at a certain point, the father's going to, guess what? It's time, son. It's time for you to go back down there. The question they were asking about when will be that time when you'll come back? It's time. I love this in verse 10 and 11. Men of Galilee, these these two in white are standing next to him. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? It's this cloud of glory. It's not necessarily a cloud up in the sky. It's, it's, if you go back to the time when Jesus is, is, is before them on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says a cloud came around them. It's this cloud of glory. So this cloud of glory takes Jesus. And maybe it's up a little bit that it's in the sky. This cloud of glory is there. Jesus goes into it. And they're standing there just gaping, looking like, whoa. And he says, why are you standing there? Listen to this. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. And and you can underline these ways. Will come back. This Jesus is coming again. He is going to return. We don't know when. We don't know at the time and and, and where the place will be. But he's coming back. Because listen to what he says. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. It's not going to be some kind of all sense spiritual presence. There's this very clear statement that in the same way Jesus went in his cloud of glory, Jesus will come again in a cloud of glory. Jesus came the first time into Jerusalem and he rode on the colt of a donkey and he was offering peace. Here is the appointed king coming who is rejected by people. At one point he weeps as he steps and, and he's looking over Jerusalem. He's weeping and he says because they did not know the time of God's appearing. They missed it. And he says, soon there will be judgment. This judgment will come in 70 AD. And it, not one stone will stand upon another. But there will be another time when Jesus is coming. He says, I'm coming again. Just like I came, I left. He says, you guys quit looking into the sky. Because someday you'll look in the sky. And in the cloud of glory, Jesus is going to come in the same way that he left. But here's the thing. Scripture tells us he's not going to ride the colt of a donkey, which was a sign of a king coming in peace. There is this time until he comes again that every person has an opportunity to make their hearts right with God. But when he does come, here's what Revelation tells us. 
Revelation 19, and Jesus always keeps his promise. He says, I'm coming again. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. A white horse was the horse that was pure, was the horse that was the, the horse of war, whose rider is called faithful and true, and with justice he judges and he wages war. And his eyes are like blazing fire. You ever had that with a parent one? You look like... He's kind of looking down at the earth. He says, it's time. All this sin, all this decay, all this corruption, all this injustice is over. It's done. His eyes are like blazing fire and his head is, are many crowns and he has written the name written on it and that no one knows but he himself. And he's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him on ride, and they were riding on white horses. Anybody like westerns? Okay, it's kind of like the posse in the sky. They're coming here to round up all evil. And dressed in fine linen and white clean and white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, which means with an iron grip. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has his name written King of Kings. Lord of Lords. I'm going to ask the team to come and I'm going to ask you just to stand. Would you? I'm going to ask you to bow your head as the team comes. I just, would, I just ask you in quietness right now, as you're before God. I, I, I know the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. I'm convinced there are some of you who are dealing with something in your life and you know that the King of Kings says it's, it's, you need to let it go. The work of forgiveness is done. It's not about forgiveness. I'm not here to, to punish you. It's not about punishment anymore. It's about you're not going to get the best that God wants for you because you're trying to hold on to something that will limit what God can do in your life. And it may be a sin. It may be a desire. It may be some dream that's less than what God has for you. But would you let it go in the name of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you. I'm going to hold on to you right now. I want you more than what I want anything else. Some of you, God has been speaking and saying, you know what, there's been a person on your heart It's time to listen and pray and in the right moment, boldly ask. Church, it's time for the church to become bold. Jesus is on the throne. He is moving in our midst. He's moving throughout the world. It may not look like it to you. It didn't look like it maybe to Stephen, but God was moving into the heart of Paul. Do what God's calling you to do. If he's speaking to you and he's asking you to make an ask or he's asking you to follow him in some way, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you say, yes, yes, God, yes, God. We thank you in Christ's name.